This is an impressive number of people for uh, this time in the term, so we really appreciate you coming. And what is all, what are all the pictures going on? <laughs> is there something I don't know about this event? <laughs> Very uh, unlike us, usual, usually in this uh, in this environment. Um, the two speakers we have today are very well known to you all. Uh, Francesca Lessa is the author of the book, which is portrayed there, portrayed here, and portrayed there. Uh, and I was thinking about how to introduce Francesca, and I decided she's like the ref goddess. <laughs> if that means, does anybody here know what the ref is, or does anybody not know what the ref is, better said. Uh, ref is this exercise that we go through um, every five years to show how much research we've done and where we've gotten it published, and also the impact of that research. And Francesca has just hit every single one of these things, these measures for research productivity and impact. And in that way, she's the ref goddess. My, uh, it's an award they don't give you, but we should we should form our own ref goddess club. Um, you can remember that just a year ago we gathered for a different book launch. Wasn't that a year ago or two, two years, years ago. ago? Two years ago. How quickly time flies! Uh, and that was on memory of state terrorism in the Southern Cone. Uh, Francesca was a co-editor of that book. Last year, she produced a book on amnesty in the in the era of human or in the age of human rights accountability also co-edited and she produced a book on Uruguay uh, luchas contra la impunidad luchas contra la impunidad and now we are looking at her latest product. <laughs> now you know why we call her the, the, the ref goddess. And on top of this, she's had a huge impact in her work. And, and the singular impact in, in particular was the role she played in bringing attention to the amnesty law in Uruguay and participating in the process of perhaps only temporarily, but uh, of uh, derogating that, that law. So we're happy to have yet another book to celebrate, another book to launch, and, uh, and to congratulate Francesca on all her productivity. We couldn't have dreamed of a better person to be her discussant. And Catherine Sicking just happened, our dream just happened to be in Oxford during this term. She's at the Blavatnik School of Governance and also at Nuffield and um, is about to leave, like in two or three days. So we managed to make her already very hectic schedule even more hectic by coming and uh, discussing Francesca's book. But I say we couldn't have dreamed of a better person because she has published her own book, The Justice Cascade, not too long ago. Um, although if anyone who was here just a couple of weeks ago got to hear about her new work on, the, on Latin America's contribution to the idea, the notion of human rights. Um, but the book, The Justice Cascade, is almost a semi-autobiographical book of Catherine's travels through the struggle for the same period of time that Francesca is dealing with in her book, uh, and particularly this effort uh, of bringing justice in Uruguay and in Argentina, where she was living during this period of time. So Catherine is a McKnight professor and a Regents professor of politics and political science at the University of Minnesota. She's an award-winning author, and we're just very happy to have you here to discuss Francesca's book. So let's begin.
begin. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Lee, for this uh, extremely nice introduction. And thank you, everybody, for uh, coming. I know it's a difficult time in the term, so I'm very grateful to the students that have taken time out of the revision to be here today. And I also would like to thank uh, many of my friends who are here, because I don't think the book uh, would be here without them. And they supported me very much in the last, uh, last summer when I was trying to get the book ready for publication. And also, the last thing, I would like to thank uh, Giuseppe Lana, who made it here from Italy, to be here today for the launch, because he kindly donated the work of art that you see as the book cover for my book. So I'm sure we can talk about that maybe in the Q&A if you're interested in seeing a combination of art and academia. Um, the book, as you can see from the title, uh, deals with issues of uh, memory and transitional justice. And in particular, it examines the relationship between the ways in which people remember and make sense of a traumatic past, what I define as memory narratives, and also how these narratives influence uh, the choice of transitional justice mechanisms, trials, truth commissions, amnesties, or reparations that are adopted to come to terms with that traumatic past. In the book, in particular, I also construct a theoretical framework um, that attempts to examine the evolution of transitional justice policies and memory narratives. And I do so through the concept of critical junctures, which uh, tracks moments of change or transition. And I use this uh, framework of critical junctures to better understand the way in which policies of transitional justice and memory narratives changed over time in the case studies of Argentina and Uruguay in terms of the memory of the military dictatorships. And I think I picked uh, these two countries because they've been engaging with issues of justice and memory for over 30 years. So they are particularly helpful for tracking moments in which change happened in terms of transitional policy and memory, transitional justice policy and memory. Uh, for the rest of my talk, however, I will go through some key points and issues that are discussed in the book through uh, telling you the stories of Macarena and Simon. Simon should be Uruguayan, but he never lived in Uruguay. He actually didn't even know that this was his parents' land until he was 26 years old. Macarena should be Argentine, but she always lived in Montevideo, where at the age of 23, she found out that she was the granddaughter of a famous Argentine poet. Simon is in fact Argentine and Macarena is Uruguayan. But how did this come to be? I've chosen to relate their life stories because I think they are particularly illustrative of both the human rights violations that were perpetrated at the time of the dictatorships, but also they exemplified the struggles for justice and against impunity that took place in Argentina and Uruguay over the past three decades. There are at least four moments to Simone's and Macarena's story. Terror, impunity, hope, and justice. The first moment is terror. And I hope the PowerPoint will work, because we, the students here know that PowerPoint has <laughs> surprises in this room. This is Simone Riquelo, 
in his blue crib, the day in which, uh, just being 20 days old, he was kidnapped together with his mother, Sara Mendes, in Buenos Aires. It was the night of July 13, 1976, when Uruguayan and Argentine officers broke into their home, taking Simon and his mother away. Simon's parents, Uruguayans Sara and Mauricio, were in exile in the Argentine capital, having fled the dictatorship that had taken over in Uruguay in June 1973. At the time, Argentina was also living through another military government that had taken over in March uh, 1976. Against the backdrop of the global Cold War, most of the countries of the region were actually governed <coughs> by military and authoritarian regimes inspired by the national security doctrine, including also Chile, Brazil, Paraguay, and Bolivia. On August 24, 1976, Marcelo Hellman, the son of poet Juan Hellman and his wife, Maria Claudia Garcia, aged 20 and 19, were kidnapped by armed agents in their home in Buenos Aires. Maria Claudia was seven months pregnant at the time. Sara, Marcelo, and Maria Claudia were all illegally detained, although at different times, in the clandestine detention center known as Automotore Sorletti in Buenos Aires Floresta neighborhood. Orletti was one of almost 500 clandestine detention centers that existed in Argentina during the time of the dictatorship, and people, uh, thousands of people were detained, tortured, and most often disappeared through this network of illegal detention centers. Orletti was, however, slightly different from the other detention centers that existed in Argentina. In fact, it was the operating base of Operation Condor in Buenos Aires. Operation Condor was a secret transnational network of intelligence and counterinsurgency operations that had been set up by the different military governments of the region that were trying to target political opponents that had gone into exile or hiding in neighboring countries. And this network effectively established a borderless area of persecution and repression throughout South America. Many Uruguayans, Chileans, Paraguayans, but also Argentines were in fact detained in Orletti in 1976. Simon was taken away from his mother's arms by Uruguayan military officer Gavasso, who told Sara not to worry about her son's fate since, he said, this was not a war against the children. The armed forces of both Argentina and Uruguay, in fact, believed that they were engaged in a war of salvation to save their homelands from the subversive threat of communist and subversive groups. Human rights and victims associations challenged this war narrative talking instead of state terrorism and human rights violations. They pointed out the dictatorial governments were perpetrating systematic violations of the rights of their citizens, ranging from illegal detention, torture, disappearances, and even the illegal appropriation of children born to women in secret detention. 
and it's been estimated that about 500 children were illegally adopted in this way. We move on to the second moment in this story, which is the moment of impunity. In l late 1983, Argentina returns to democracy. And initially, there was an attempt to try to shed light on the disappearances that had been perpetrated during military rule and to punish those responsible through a truth commission and also the historic trial of the military juntas that had been decreed by President Alfonsin. However, these steps proved short-lived. By the mid and late 1980s, the government finally gave in to pressures from the armed forces that opposed prosecutions for human rights violations. The government of Alfonsin enacted two amnesty laws, and later on the government of Menem adopted presidential pardons in the early 1990s to terminate all criminal cases for the crimes of the dictatorship. Both of these governments used narratives of reconciliation and national unity to attempt to legitimize the amnesties and pardons. But the granting of impunity for the atrocities of the past didn't go unnoticed. In fact, for example, members of the association's uh, Mothers of May Square opposed the government's reconciliation policy. And they stated in the mid-1980s, and I quote, can this reconciliation be, based, be achieved based on the pardoning of the henchmen of the Argentine people? Can this reconciliation be based on injustice? Uruguay also returned to democracy in the mid-1980s, in 1985. But unlike Argentina, the president of Julio Maria Sanguinetti didn't sponsor any truth-seeking or justice initiatives regarding the dictatorship crimes. Rather, an amnesty law, the 1986 Ley de Caducidad, was adopted to end all investigations into the atrocities of the past. The Uruguayan government also used narratives of reconciliation to justify the enactment of the amnesty law. The government also talked of the two demons, the military and the guerrilla, comparing their crimes and talking of the need to grant them both amnesty in order to secure peace in the aftermath of war. However, also these narratives didn't go unchallenged. A member of the Uruguayan parliament, for instance, forcefully refuted these arguments of demons in 1986, when the Ley de Calucidad was being discussed by parliament. And this member of parliament uh, said, and I quote, what demons were they fighting was that of Simon Riquelo. Were they perhaps the demon that had to be fought with the weapons of demons? No, Mr. President, there was here a criminal gang within the armed forces that some are trying to defend and they live alongside the families of their victims. By the early 1990s, impunity in the form of amnesties and pardons was firmly in place in both Argentina and Uruguay, consolidated in Uruguay even by a majority popular vote in a referendum in 1989 on the amnesty law itself. We move on to the third moment in this presentation, which is the moment of hope. 
Despite this background of official silence and impunity in Argentina and Uruguay, civil society activists and victims' relatives endured in the struggle against impunity throughout the 1990s. Macarena's grandfather, Juan Helman, kept on looking for his disappeared granddaughter, receiving no support from either of the two countries' governments. Helman followed several leads about the possible fate and location of the grandchild, and he reached the conclusion that she was living in Montevideo, where she had been raised by the family of a policeman. A parallel investigation by two journalists from La Repubblica newspaper also corroborated that version. In 1999, Helman requests the cooperation of Uruguay's government in finding his grandchild, but there was no success. Later on, Helman also wrote an open letter to President Sanguinetti asking why he was not helping him in finding the missing grandchild. Later on, an international campaign by intellectuals and Nobel laureates also lobbied President Sanguinetti to help Juan Helman. Sanguinetti, however, remained stubborn and publicly denied that any of Helman's relatives were to be found in Uruguay, famously stating that no child had disappeared on Uruguayan soil. The change of government in Uruguay proved key to resolving Macarena's case. In March 2000, the new president, Jorge Valle, announced on March 30th that the government had located Macarena in Montevideo and she was reunited with her grandfather. Sara, like Juan, had been searching from, for Simon since she had been released from political prison in the early 1980s. She also didn't receive any support from the Uruguayan or Argentine authorities. Many of the leads pointed to Simon being in Uruguay, having been adopted by a family in Uruguay. The Uruguayan judiciary, however, contributed to covering up the fate of Simon, failing to authorize a blood test, which could have shown much earlier that Gerardo Vasquez was not really Simon Riquelo. This lead was followed by Sarah and her family for 10 years, and it turned out to be false in the year 2000. In 2001, the first truth commission was established in Uruguay to look into cases of disappearances, and the truth commission told Sara that Simone had probably died soon after being abandoned at an hospital in Buenos Aires. But Sara vowed that she would stop looking for Simone only the day she would be reunited with him. Similarly to the investigation in Macarena's case, also in the case of Simon, uh, the investigative journalist Roger Rodriguez played a key role, and in this case together with the left-wing senator. And there they led to the identification of Simon in March 2002. Uh, Roger Rodriguez had been talking with some uh, former policemen and military officers and they told him that a red-head baby had been adopted by a policeman <coughs> in Buenos Aires. And through this lead, they were able to find Simone. I move on to the final moment, which is the moment of justice. 
policies of silence and impunity in Argentina and Uruguay had left it to the victims and their relatives and activists to fight often a solitary battle for justice and accountability. But these policies of impunity began to crumble in the early 2000s in parallel to the appearance of Macarena and Simone. Many factors account for the shift toward accountability, but I think the most significant was the enduring and sustained struggle of the victims, relatives, and human rights groups. In Argentina, the amnesty laws were overturned in 2003 and prosecutions started in 2006. The government of uh, President Kirchner in 2003 particularly championed the issue of accountability and there was a desire to work for justice. For example, one of the politicians that was debating the nullification of the amnesty laws in Argentina in 2003 argued for the need to end impunity for the crimes of the dictatorship, but also impunity, and I quote, as a structuring pattern of societies in Argentina and Latin America. In Uruguay, the struggle to overturn the Ley de Caducidad was much more convoluted, and its eventual derogation in 2011 was finally obtained after many twists and turns. In the case of Uruguay, a particular role was played by international pressure in the form of a sentence by the Inter-American Court in the Hellman case that pushed the reluctant government in Uruguay toward effective action for accountability. <coughs> Justice for Macarena. The Ley de Caducidad in Uruguay was applied to obstruct the prosecution of people responsible for disappearing Macarena's mother, but also for her illegal adoption. Because of this, Macarena and her grandfather decided to resort to the inter-American system for the protection of human rights in 2006. In February 2011, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights condemned Uruguay for the first time in the country's history for failing to investigate the disappearance of Maria Claudia Hellman but also the legal adoption of her baby daughter, Macarena. As part of the sentence, uh, Uruguay was also ordered to carry out a public act of acknowledgement of responsibility, and this is the photo that you see on, uh, up there. Uh, this act took place last year, in March last year, in the, in the Uruguayan parliament. And the president of Uruguay recognized at the time of this uh, public act that there had been in Uruguay a systematic policy of repression of social and political organizations, as well as Uruguay's responsibility for the human rights violations committed specifically against the Hellman family. Mujica also recognized that the Ley de Caducidad had been applied and interpreted in a specific way to prevent the victims from accessing justice and obtaining the truth in the case. Mujica also vowed that Uruguay would continue to search for Maria Claudia's body and also to prosecute those responsible for these crimes. While Ma Maria Claudia's body has yet to be found, in October 2011, a criminal case began 
in the case of Maria Claudia Hellman and five policemen and military officers have been prosecuted for this case and a sentence is still pending. Justice for Simon. In this photo, you can see Simon Riquelo, his son, and his mother, Sara. In August last year, August 2012, a civil appeals court in Montevideo also condemned Uruguay for its responsibility in the disappearance of Simon, but in particular for the government's role in obstructing the search for Simon and his identification. In particular, this court also commented on the amnesty law in the, in the country that was used by different governments to obstruct the search for justice, even when this law, in fact, had an explicit exception which made it possible to investigate the fate of missing children. But the government, and I quote the sentence, did nothing in that regard. I've, I've used the stories of Simone and Macarena as a way to express uh, some of the themes that are in, in this book, which relate to the trajectory of justice and accountability and memory in Argentina and Uruguay. For example, the truth denied to Sara regarding Simone's fate for 26 years, the lack of justice faced by Juan and Macarena, but also their enduring struggles against impunity and silence. What is the situation these days? And with this, I almost conclude. In Argentina, the judicial investigation and sanctioning of past atrocities is ongoing. Since 2006, 400, over 400 people have been sentenced for crimes relating to the dictatorship and hundreds more currently face trials. While justificatory narratives of war excesses and two demons continue to be parroted by military defendants during judicial proceedings and by their supporters within society in the attempt to rationalize the horrors of the past, the narratives of state terrorism and justice seem to have become much more relevant now. In Uruguay, conversely, the derogation of the amnesty law in 2011 has yet to lead to a genuine process of prosecution and <coughs> investigation of the truth. In Uruguay, there is still no clear-cut policy of accountability, and progress has been much more limited compared to Argentina. Even though it is important to recognize the important steps that have been taken by the left-wing uh, government of the Frente Amplio since 2005, I think there have also been many setbacks and much more could have been attempted by this government if there had been real political will to make progress in accountability. Furthermore, there have been some recent events, just when I was about to submit my book, so they are not in the book, so this is my chance to, to mention them briefly. In February and March this year, such as, for example, the transfer of a criminal judge, who was the judge that was dealing with the vast majority of uh, criminal cases of the dictatorship, she was transferred to a civil court. And there have also been uh, sentences by the Supreme Court of Uruguay that have led to the archiving of some of the ongoing investigations, which signal that the overturn of the amnesty law in Uruguay 
only signal the end of legal impunity, but that many other forms of factual impunity still endure in the way of justice. Thank you. Um, well, first, it's just a real pleasure to be here to comment on Francesca Lessa's really excellent new book. This book will be the definitive work on transitional justice, or I should say is, in my opinion, this book is the definitive work, and I think will be the definitive work on transitional justice in Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, it is uh, especially important for bringing together the literature on memory with the literature on transitional justice. And as Francesco points out, sometimes those literatures are oddly separate from one another. Um, the, uh, the book combines deep and rich research with well-organized theoretical analysis. So it's what we like in an academic book. And, uh, and in particular, uh, Francesca makes a really important contribution to thinking more systematically about memory by isolating a series of memory narratives that she's referred to and exploring how these influence transitional justice. Um, now, I, one, I think this is a very illuminating way to illustrate uh, and understand the Uruguay and Argentine cases. And I also think it could be a very illuminating way to think about a broader range of cases in Latin America as well as cases, um, as well as cases elsewhere in the world. And that's something I'm going to come back to later in my remarks is sort of what, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to encourage Francesca to take this project uh, uh, on to a new set of cases and work on the future. And I'm going to ask a few questions and, uh, uh, and, and make a few suggestions about uh, doing that. Um, so first, in the introduction of the book, Francesca provides a really excellent overview of transitional justice and memory studies. So it's the kind of thing that if you wanted a nice chapter to use in your class to give you an <laughs> overview, uh, chapter one uh, does a really good job of summarizing a, a, a complex literature in a useful way. Um, the book is a product of uh, really outstanding field research. Francesca has talked to all the relevant people, she's read all the documents, and she's written it up in a compelling fashion. Her research does justice to the complexities of these societies. Okay, so she recognizes the many disagreements within civil society as well as disagreements within government. Um, at the same time, she uh, creates order within this complexity uh, using the critical judgers framework uh, combined with memory narratives. And so it has the, really the strength of both combining this, this complex understanding, but helping us kind of simplify and clarify that. Um, so I think that this will be the fundamental go-to text on transitional justice in Argentina and Uruguay, the one that you'll want to keep on your shelf and consult from time to time. And even those of us who know quite a lot about Argentina and Uruguay, uh, well, I mean, I know I'm going to pull it off and I'm going to have it available to check those facts that, and, and, and that you can never keep in your mind, but that are all here. Um, so, you know, the, I have studied, as Lee said, I've studied this period and these two countries. I've, in fact, lived in the countries during part of the time that Francesca uh, um, describes, and I've researched them. And yet, reading this book, I learned you know, new facts, new interpretations, and new ways 
of approaching the issue. And so it's just full of things that, that you read and you go, I didn't know that. Um, and if it, uh, you know, from from big points uh, to uh, even you know small quotes, quotes of people that many of us have heard quoted before, but all of a sudden they're saying something new that I hadn't heard. Um, so just to give you an example, there's one point you cite Graciela Fernandez Mejides, uh, who was so one of the Argentines most involved in the Truth Commission process. Mother um, of a disappeared, I believe, and. Uh, but what it, she's saying here, at one point she says, relatives might prefer to have information about the whereabouts, the whereabouts of the disappeared rather than another trial. And she recommends a plea bargain system according to which if new facts are given, like burial locations, the whereabouts of, of abducted children, uh, lesser sentences could be offered. Well, that's, I actually didn't know there were people in Argentina that were making that a recommendation. Um, one of the most important contributions of the book is that it's thinking more systematically about memory. There's sometimes memory studies are a bit amorphous. And I think that the, the strength here is that these, this notion of a limited number of uh, memory narratives really helps um, kind of give a more, um, can I say, more clarity to what one means by memory. Um, the, and then it allows her to trace the interplay of these memory narratives with the transitional justice developments in both countries. Um, now, Uruguay, in this book, Uruguay has the same memory narratives as Argentina does. And I was actually surprised when I read that, because I kind of expected that there would be some similar and some different. And so my first question for you is, why is it that these two countries have the same narratives? Is it because they had similar experiences in post-Cold War Latin America, because they're close to one another, and, uh, and, um, and their memory narratives are linked, because their histories were so common and so similar? Uh, <coughs> or are there, in fact, just a limited number of memory narratives available? And you've listed them all. Um, what about transitional uh, countries elsewhere in the world? And what about other Latin American countries? Would that same list of six, just six memory narratives, uh, uh, would those be the same six that we would expect to reappear elsewhere in Latin America or elsewhere in the world, or not? Um, and in particular, since both Uruguay and Argentina had armed conflicts, and some of the resulting narratives, uh, the notion of a war narrative, of these two demons narrative, are, are really come out of the war, does that mean that those memory narratives will only appear, obviously, in these uh, countries that have experienced civil war? And in that case, you know, it'd be interesting. We'd like to see. I mean, I'd like to see you take on some of the other civil war cases in Latin America, especially uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Peru, and see whether those same six narratives uh, reappear there. But I would think, for example, Chile, that you talk about briefly in the end of the book, I would think Chile has a different set of memory, it has some of the same, but it's, it has some different ones. Um, now, I found the argument persuasive that Argentina and Uruguay mainly had the same narratives, but I thought maybe that Uruguay had at least one narrative that Argentina doesn't have. Um, and you, Francesca, discusses it in the text of the book, but it doesn't, in, it doesn't uh, appear as a memory narrative. In the Uruguay case, I think there's a quite unique memory narrative that comes from the plebiscite process. And let's call it a democracy narrative. 
Okay? After the plebiscite in Uruguay, when I interviewed human rights activists, people say about what now, people would literally say, el pueblo habló. And what they meant by that, the people have spoken, right? What they meant was, the people have spoken, and so we're going to stop demanding justice. Um, now, uh, it was a sense that, uh, that democracy should take precedence, and they should follow the voices of the people, and therefore they should change their advocacy as a result. Now, this could be just another uh, pacification and reconciliation narrative that, you know, and I think sometimes you do characterize it that way. But I think it's different than those in the sense that it really, in the Uruguayan case, is born out of kind of a deep, this Uruguayan said this deep faith in democracy. So it's not other, like other pacification and reconciliation narratives elsewhere, which is, you know, let's kind of put this behind us and we're worried about conflict and so we have to, we have to reconcile and pacify. It, it, it sets up a more genuine conflict in the Uruguayan soul, I would say. Um, and so then there's the other, another group that says, los derechos humanos no se plebiscita, right? Roughly translated. You know, you don't vote on people's human rights. Um, meaning that maybe majorities aren't entitled to make decisions about what rights uh, minorities have, in this case, the victims. Now, I think that this is a unique memory narrative in Uruguay that's not captured by the list you provide. And I think it's one reason why the current debate is still so fraught in Uruguay. So I completely agree that Argentina has come further. Uruguay, it's more difficult, more fraught. But I think this, this, this democracy narrative is still there, where democracy and justice are perceived as being in conflict. And it's not a phony democracy one. Two plebiscites on exactly the language of the amnesty law passed by majorities of the Uruguayan public in campaigns that had very large participation, very large mobilization. So it's a quite rare thing. It probably may not exist elsewhere in the world, but I think it's important in Uruguay. Um, now, as I say, you recognize in the text and you give, I'm not saying you don't mention it, you give, a, I think, a very brilliant discussion of it. It just doesn't appear as a memory narrative that's unique to Uruguay. And so it almost seems like Uruguay only gets to borrow memory narratives from Argentina rather than have anything uh, unique of its own. Um, the, uh, now, if Argentina and Uruguay can have some similar narratives and some different ones, this opens up space for thinking comparatively about other parts of the world. Um, and so I just, you know, I would suspect as you broaden out, you're going to find these new narratives elsewhere that don't exist in, in Uruguay and Argentina. Um, now, I particularly like the way that Francesca has incorporated a, a couple of things you didn't mention in your talk, but she, she talks about these moments. There's a political moment, but she, there's one she calls an evidentiary moment, and there's another she calls an international moment. And I think those are very thoughtful things. The evidentiary moment suggests that although memory is persistent, uh, it is not completely resilient to the challenges of evidence such as unmarked, uh, such as exhumed graves, for example, or the kinds of evidence that you showed us with the stories of the disappeared children. And so this, I think, this notion that memory does respond to evidence sometimes is, I think, a hopeful story for groups that mobilize and try to bring evidence to bear through courts, through exhumed graves, through truth commissions, uh, and through other efforts. Uh, and then I also, um, I, I really appreciate this international moment 
This is mainly a book of comparative politics uh, that focuses on these rich domestic stories. And yet Francesca, as you heard in her presentation, is very aware that there's an international dimension here as well that makes a difference. Now I want to conclude with a, a few additional questions for Francesca, and mainly these are to get you thinking about a new, broader project using these concepts. So it, I want to say these questions uh, uh, come out of my enthusiasm for the work and wanting to push you uh, to, to, to take it further. Um, the first question I have involves the theoretical role of critical junctures in the work. And I think sometimes, sometimes it seems that critical junctures, as you said in today's talk, simply help show change over time. But sometimes it seems like theoretical junctures are doing the, 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 the they're doing the work. They're doing the, um, uh, they, they're doing the work of explaining difference. Okay, and I, I would encourage you to continue to use critical junctures, but be slightly clearer about exactly what you mean. And I'm not persuaded at all that critical junctures can do or are doing explanatory work. I think they're categories that are holding other explanatory variables or explanatory factors. And sometimes it gets mixed up. Sometimes we think critical junctures are, are explaining things. Um, and it seems to me that critical junctures mainly are holding other factors, types of transitions. Um, uh, the, for example, uh, you know, these, the, the ruptured uh, transition in Argentina, um, they're holding things like these international pressures, right? And that those, those factors are doing the work, and, and not the critical juncture per se. Um, and uh, the, um, and then finally, uh, my last question has to do, and I think this is with a very potentially controversial point in the book, so I wanted to bring it up, and that is that this involves the war narrative, and especially the war narrative in Uruguay. Um, Francesca really grapples with the issue of how uh, the, um, not just the government, but former guerrillas in Uruguay endorse the war narrative. Um, now, this is important because sometimes we associate the war, it's only the, the governments that talk about war. Uh, but in a number of places, she tells us that the Tupamaro guerrillas, now a crucial part of the ruling coalition in Uruguay, uh, the Broad Front, the Frente Amplio, have also used the war narratives at talking about a revolutionary war whose ultimate objective was to defeat the government. She points to the fact that three former Tupamaros, one of them now the president of the country, Jose Mujica, the other one the minister of defense, Cuido uh, Obro, um, um, relatively recently used a war narrative saying they carried with pride the wounds incurred in combat. Okay. Now, um, as so, since you recognize Tupamaros have contributed to reinforcing the war narrative and even sometimes the two demons narrative because the two demons narrative elevated the Tupamaros to demon status, thus depicting them as protagonists in important events even after they were actually defeated. All right. Now, um, I, but I'm not, so you recognize this, but I'm not sure you fully integrated into your uh, understanding of the Frente Amplio itself and why the Frente Amplio may be ambivalent to this day about justice. Uh, and, and I think that the degree to which the, um, Tupama, some of Tupamaro leaders in the current government still, uh, in their hearts, embrace the war narrative. It's not a very popular thing to talk about publicly, 
but I, you know, I think they believe it still, may lead to a kind of uh, hesitance to fully embrace um, uh, a state terrorism uh, or, uh, narrative. And I think that by doing that, it may give you some, some tools to think more comparatively. Like this would, if that's the case, it would suggest that in El Salvador, where the Frente Varuno Martí also had a war narrative, and I think also still has a war narrative, is a place we've seen very little progress on transitional justice. Um, and uh, so, uh, so I do think that these two issues may help, that are present in the book but not highlighted, may help explain uh, this Uruguayan, this unique Uruguayan ambivalence. On one hand, you have the democracy question, uh, the democracy narrative, I would argue. On the other, you have the, the leadership, a crucial leadership running the country right now, still uh, embracing or having embraced the war narrative. Um, now, I'm going to uh, just end here saying that, uh, just saying that I would just really recommend to all of you to put this book on your reading list. I know you ha uh, have lots of time. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I very much hope that Francesca will continue this line of research in the future with additional cases to expand the theoretical contribution she's making here and make it available to more scholars. So thank you.